So if I had to guess, if I had to speculate, because I don't really have any actual footage, but I would guess that my taint is something similar to, say, one of those fittings on the end of like a, a shop vac, you know, with the bristles, like the rectangular end with the bristles that face each other. Not the round one with the bristles, because that's 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 what my balloon knot looks like, probably. All right, so in keeping with doing this broadcast from odd trajectories, say, in, like, alleyways and, uh, and uh, parking lots and nudist colonies, uh, I think the next, uh, in next iteration will be uh, as a skydiver, uh, which would be super cool, I think. I don't know. Um, just to be doing a podcast as you're hurtling to earth although as many of you know me many of you that know me well know that that uh wouldn't be plausible just based on the mere fact that i'm um agoraphobic and uh afraid uh, irrationally afraid of heights okay so that being said uh this is uh, this is about things and, well, I, you know, it also, it makes me kind of think of like, uh, doing work for I, I like from your car, like in a car, like that's kind of what the basis is for the podcast and then, or the title, like car dogs is anything in and around cars, right? It's like, I think I get it maybe from like this. Uh, I saw a Hewlett Packard commercial when I was like 12 years old, 13 years old. And all it was was a guy driving down the highway, flying down the highway in a vintage convertible Corvette. And his, uh, his, his notes or his work papers were just in his passenger seat. And uh, he stopped and then he kind of mugged for the camera and just made it look like he was working. I thought, what the fuck? This guy works right out of his Corvette. I'm like, wow, that's fucking awesome. So maybe that's kind of where I get this notion where I could just broadcast wherever the hell I feel like it, huh? Like in this godforsaken pit called Placerville. Just joking. But the skydiving thing is a, uh, that's a serious, that's uh, mm, potentially, it's potentially a, a well, no, it's not. Who am I kidding? But it's a good example of um, two divergent lifestyles. One being the person there who's going to jump out of, who's paying money to jump out of a plane and uh, go through the kind of this life affirming, you know, sometimes it's the, f- most of the time it's the first time or the only time that they're ever going to do this just so that they can say that they, they, they did it. They, I've jumped out of a plane. You know, my life flashed before me. It was, it was so life-affirming. It was so amazing. I had tears, you know? But the other side of that, the flip side, is the guy that you're strapped to. That's his job. So, like, for eight hours a day, like, this guy... Wakes up in the morning, but this girl wakes up in the morning, whoever it is, has a coffee, flips through the channels on TV, maybe does a few stretches. Uh, excuse me, oh my God. And, uh, ooh, sorry, it was in me. Now it's on me. But um, then they uh, drive to work, they drive to Lodi, they get in a plane with a bunch of eager and nervous, anxious uh usually probably professional young urban professionals uh probably mostly white i mean and let's be honest um and then they strap themselves to this person and then they go up about 20 times and every time they land with this person the person jumps up and down and gets down on their knees and cries and or you know I mean, it's kind of stereotypical look at it, but that's what happens. And, and then they get in another plane and they do it again. 
So that's, I always found that interesting. Like, that's just some dude's job. Like, or that's some person's job. It's like working at a credit union, you know? It's like working at Ace Hardware. It's just what you do. But you risk your life every time, every time, every time. So the point of this all was there's a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot going on here in this podcast. I've been eager all day to talk about all this shit. And it has a lot to do with, um, well, first of all, my man, David Goggins, I was talking to my lady about this guy, this Navy SEAL or uh, retired Navy SEAL who um, deemed himself uncommon amongst the uncommon, which is like the fucking coolest. And uh, just has his rise to, uh, well, his own notoriety, his personal notoriety as far as a SEAL goes, but he went from basically a 297-pound you know, overweight guy, this kind of, mm, I don't know, some would describe, or he would self-describe as as, uh, as a loser, just kind of spraying cockroaches and eating donuts and milkshakes and wanted to change his life, kind of came from a mm, pretty rough background. His dad, you know, beat him, beat his mom. Um... Uh, and he wasn't able to go to school because he was. His dad wanted him to work at this uh, skating rink that he worked at, that he owned. And um, so he, he would work late nights. School was kind of most of the time out of the question. And then uh, his mom ended up leaving his his dad, and was going to marry another guy. That guy got murdered, and he just had to all this kind of like just fucked up imagery in his life and he wanted to change it and uh he didn't know how but he figured he would try just joining the military but he wanted to be uh like a paratrooper but he couldn't he had to pass a test uh and he was illiterate so he went long story short he ended up going into the seals well <clears throat> yeah he went into the navy seals he was he went into the navy and uh, he in, he entered a bunch of uh, well he wanted to run it was uh, he was due as it, when he was a seal and he was pretty jacked he was a pretty big dude as a seal but he was doing he wanted to raise some money for a uh, um, Marcus Marcus Latrell's I think it was his brother like some kind of fundraiser Marcus. Uh, Latrell is is the guy at, that uh, that movie Lone Survivor is about with Marky Mark about the um, the uh, oh the Delta Force guys that got jumped and uh, he was I guess the the only lone survivor but his brother they were raising money for his brother for some something and he wanted to uh, run a fun in a fundraiser. And he had to qual. He had to qualify. It was like a hundred miler. He and he had to qual. He called the race organizer. And he had to qualify. And you had to do. You had to run a hundred miles in, in under twenty four hours. So, with no training, and just a box of Ritz crackers and some Myoplex, which I don't even know what that is. Like, there's no no hydration. There's no. nutritional resources he goes out and it's on a track and he runs 70 miles with no training his feet break he's shitting on himself uh he's pissing blood he can't even make it to the outhouse and after 70 miles he's on death's door but then something happened like he just something in him just kind of like he had never experienced a pain like that, but his brain went to another place and he did 31 more miles. He did 101 miles to make sure he did 100 miles. And uh, lo and behold, he that that changed him. That, that's what that's kind of how he became this guy, David Goggins. And if you know who this guy is, you know who this guy is. This guy's a fucking he is the hardest motherfucker 
uh, probably that ever lived. I mean, he just, he just ins- insanely just, it, but it's all in his head, you know? It's all between his ears, which is where he went to to run that other 31 miles. I mean, to be a SEAL, to be a SEAL for one. I mean, you've got, you, you, you're doing training, you're swimming under aircraft carriers and shit, okay? You know, you're sleeping underwater. Um, so I've always been a huge, you know, ever since I came across him on the Rogan podcast, he, uh, it was, I'm like, wow, this mother, like, it just gives you chills, man. Just the stories. And it makes you want to run through a brick wall. It makes you feel, it doesn't matter what stage of life you're in, young, old, or my opinion, I don't know. Um, this, the, listen to this guy talk makes you want to run through a brick wall. And uh, so I thought to myself, you know, this can be translated into other things, a number of things. And, it, and, it, and so I, the other day I was watching like some interview with Anthony Bourdain or something. And I, I remembered him talking about when he went to Lyon on no reservations, he went, well, Lyon in France is the region where all the greats basically have worked or come from. Um, I mean, you talk about the Mount Rushmore of, of chefs, more specifically French chefs, you know, like, uh, Michel Richard and, um, Oh God, these other, um, Oh, what was the other guy's name? Uh, Jean George, uh, just you know, people that you wouldn't. I mean, you couldn't pick out of a lineup for one. But, but while he was there, he was at this. Uh, he was in this little village, and there was one guy he pointed out that had moved to Lyon or to this region at the age of fifty-three to learn how to be a cook. And I'm like, what? That's fucking insane. That alone, like that kind of story alone, just gets my nipples hard, you know. I can, I'm thinking 53, like 53, like, like this was back in 2005 or six, I believe is when he did this. So, you know, 15 years ago, roughly. So 15 years ago, you know, 53 was old. I mean, it's still old, but it's not old. I'm old, but I'm not old. You know, it's all between years, right? So I was so blown away just by the concept of that just picturing somebody just dropping everything and moving to France to learn how to cook and be a cook and stay there and he was there for five six years I believe so the backstory so I got the backstory the backstory was basically that um he uh this guy his name is Bill Buford and um he was already a uh, an editor for the New Yorker. He was a fiction editor for the New Yorker. So he was all, he already had a, a literary background, and he uh, he had already written a book called uh, uh, "Among the Thugs," which is I've I've seen this book before, but I didn't I didn't connect the dots. But "Among the Thugs." is um, about football hooligans, English football hooligans, like soccer fans, and just the violence that goes on in the stands and where it comes from, the socio socio implications and uh, all that stuff. But so, but he also had this thing for like uh, French cooking or, you know, cooking in general. And uh, so that... What he did as uh, he decided he would, and this is a, and this is a, I mean, again, he's a smart guy. He's not like just some Yahoo who just decided, oh, I'm going to go, go to France. I'll, although that would be a cool story too. Just rock up in France, you know, and just sleep in a barn somewhere, sleep in a, you know, find a couch, find a something, anything and become at the age of 53. Right. So like, you're like the old guy in the kitchen. You're like that Steve Buscemi 
Buscemi meme where he's like, uh, he's old, older Steve Buscemi, but he's wearing like young skater clothes and he's trying to blend in with the young kids like, hey, hello, fellow young kids. <laughs> and, uh, but no, this guy was a smart guy. He was, um, he's from, uh, was born in Baton Rouge. Raised in Southern California, went to Berkeley, uh, postgraduate studies at Cambridge. He was a Marshall Scholar. I mean, this guy is like no no joke. And um, he's credited with the term, coining the term dirty realism, which I, um, it's a cool term. Um, probably in, as, as a uh, descriptive tone for among the thugs describing football hooligans because they're they're brutal they're brutal I mean that's that's kind of where punk rock comes from isn't it or one takes their cues from the other but the dirty realism though was interesting because uh, Salman Rushdie dedicated a book to this guy Bill Buford who well Salman Rushdie was this purveyor of what they call magic realism his books are they use this uh the style of writing called magic realism. It's similar to like Gabriel Garcia Marquez who wrote uh, in a love in a time of cholera. It's kind of this strange kind of, um, well, for example, like uh, in the book satanic verses that Salman Rushdie wrote in the beginning, these two guys, a plane blows up a plane, a hijacked plane explodes a commercial airliner and two guys fall to earth. And then they transform into these, uh, these kind of strange kind of fictional uh, biblical characters of sorts but that's what magic realism is is kind of like this magic element to to, to a straightforward story and um, so that's pretty badass I mean I don't know someone rushing to me I've read a few of his books they're good they're good books they're not great I don't know I don't get hung uh, some of that stuff's a little over between you and I but but anyway, that's probably where the term dirty realism comes in. But, but anyway, this guy had, you know, he had, he had kids, he had a wife, he had a life. And at the age of 53, he's like, okay, we're moving to Lyon, France, and I'm going to be a cook. I'm going to be a chef. I'm going to learn how to do this. Well, so that fucking takes balls amongst balls. Um... And prior, uh, let's see, in conjunction with, or at the same time, about near the same time, near the same period, he'd uh, come out with a second book. It was called Heat, which is, it was Buford's account of working for free in the kitchen of Babbo, B-A-B-B-O, Babbo, which was a, uh, it's a New York City restaurant owned by chef uh, Mario Batali. And Buford's premise is that he considered himself a capable home cook and wondered whether he had the skills to work in a busy restaurant kitchen. He met Batali at a dinner party and asked whether he would take on, take him on as his kitchen bitch, which would be fascinating. So he had the, he had the money. I mean, he didn't have, I don't know if he had money, but he had a job and then he would do this in conjunction with that. And so Buford began his time at Babo in a variety of roles, including like dishwasher, prep cook, garbage remover, any other role, any other, anything that de was demanded of him. You know, he literally, yeah, was a kitchen bitch, which is what, what you do in the kitchen. Like, you know, there's 13, 14 year old kids in France that are already in the kitchen. That's the pedigree of learning uh, to be a chef. And all the all the greats started very young. Um, I think it was well, it was Buford himself was saying, uh, in that capacity, you don't need to go to culinary school. But if anything after that, yeah, you, he would recommend it. Uh, David Chang says you don't need culinary school. Although they all went. I mean, Anthony Bourdain went to the Culinary Institute of America. So did Chang. Or no, maybe Chang with the French. There's the French Culinary Institute. There's the Culinary Institute of America. Anyway, all these highfalutin uh, cooking schools. But if you're a, a French, if you're some French kid in a village and you're 13, you'll be in a kitchen and it's phenomenal. It's 
it's bizarre, but it's, it's the life, you know? Um, so over the course of this, this book, Heat, um, his skills improved. He was able to butcher a hog. He worked many of the stations in the restaurant. He, he traveled to Italy to meet cooks and chefs who were crucial to Batali's early culinary development. Um, he worked and in, in, in lived in some of the places that he that this that Batali honed his craft. And um, so then that kind of gave him the t- the tools, I guess, to show up in Lyon. And then uh, Daniel Boulud, Boulud, is that his name? Well, there's Paul Bocuse. He was another. That's another chef in there. And oh, Daniel Boulud. Yeah, Daniel Boulud. He was like he's like the Pope of like French cooking. And. So he wrote, uh, well, he preempted his, he preempted the trip with an article in the New Yorker about, uh, this, this guy, Daniel Balud, and it, it was titled cooking with Daniel, three French classics. And, um, then he discussed, uh, his time living in France, what he learned about French cooking and then that ultimately turned into the book that just came out uh, last year called Dirt Adventures, Dirt, semicolon, Adventures in Lyon as a Chef in Training, Father and Sleuth Looking for the Secret of French Cooking. So uh, it's, it, it, it sounds fascinating. It details his stints working with uh, this guy, Bob. He was a baker at the Boulangerie. Uh, that they they rented an apartment above this bakery, which just sounds like something out of a book, but uh, quite a life. But so it was quite a and it was quite a struggle as well. You know, you you know, there's a lot of physical and social challenges in doing something like that. You know. Um. You know, just the physical wherewithal to slaughter a pig, make blood sausage, um, you know, discovering what goes into preparing cuisine at that level. Uh, you know, the, he's working in, uh, well, the the uh, restaurant that he ended up going to work for was, uh, what was the name of it? The La Mer, La Mer Brasier, La Mer Brasier. And uh, it was a Michelin-starred restaurant, so he's in there working it. And it was a brutal. It was it was a brutal world of what he termed daily bullying, humiliations. He used the example of the, a young kid named uh, Matthew, a 15-year-old aspiring chef who arrived eager for an internship, and it was like he was a petri dish of the workplace's toxins he just absorbed everything he he arrived innocent he arrived as an innocent 15 year old and got roundly abused and now as he worked his way up station to station was trying to find his place as an abuser (laughs) well you know it's that whole adage about being in the back seat with two you know a person on either side of you and they want to squish you just lean one direction man lean one direction daddy there was another example of a, a young lady named hortense which is a boy it's not a sought after name these days is it uh but the, she was the only woman in the kitchen but she was subjected to the kind of harassment jokes um that you would find in a macho kitchen and just was it, it you know the french don't give a fuck man like, they don't give a fuck about the Me Too stuff. Nor should they. You know, we we hear out, we absorb all that out here. And, and you know, our restaurants are, 
susceptible to whatever godforsaken mandates or guidelines or political bullshit that's that's using them as 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 pawns but in france shit they've been through nazis man the french the french have been taken over by everybody the nazis rolled through there they rolled right under the arctic triomphe walked right through the middle of you know paris you know they were the French don't give it. They've had some gnarly shit happen to them, so they're not hung up on the whole Me Too thing, as far as I'm, as far as I'm aware. Because uh, the axiom, according to them, is what goes on in the kitchen stays there. But, but it, it's it's fascinating though to go from. I mean, he wasn't a complete novice, but that's balls, man. I mean, that is fucking balls. Like, again, that's what, that's an enviable. Like I. I like I want to do that. Not necessarily that specifically, because I I mean it it is fascinating. But I'm not I I'm I don't get as I don't get as amped up over just cooking, you know, cooking like poulet on vessi. You know, like chicken cooked in a pig's bladder, stuffed with truffles and foie gras and cognac. Although that sounds wild and I would like to try it, but I don't think I could do that professionally or want to do it professionally. But I would do it, you know, I'd do it for a week, a week to 10 days. So this guy, he was fat. It's fascinating. I mean, it's, I mean, it's the, it's also the brilliance of working for, for free for Mario Batali, but making a great book. I would assume making it a great book, you know, that's, that's his payment. You know, that's where the payoff comes from, comes from. But so that being said, um, it goes back to like another axiom about, well, okay, let me put it in these terms. Okay. Like we're going to work anyway, even if we don't work, you know, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to be homeless. Like we're working, uh, and that's no joke. I mean, I'm not shitting on the homeless, but you and I both seen the homeless. They're always out. They're always out and about. They're busy during the day. They're going, you know. So you gotta, you've got to work in some form. You know, it's up to you how you monetize it. And it's up to you how you dress it, right? You know what I mean? Like, we all have to work. So, choose wisely. Like, with the homeless, like, that's, again, that's not a joke. They're just as busy as we are throughout the day. They just don't get paid. And, uh, you know, David Chang, I was breezing through his book. It's not particularly exciting but one of the early chapters was an interlude on being addicted to work he said uh, he dropped he name dropped his buddy david cho who i think is a, a brilliant artist but he said my friend the artist david cho summarized it best for me work is the last socially acceptable addiction we're addicted here in the u.s whether we like it or not and i agree uh, okay, so he, David Chang, he goes on. David Chang is like the creator of Momofuku, the noodle bar, you know, all these big restaurants. He's a Michelin-starred restaurant. He's a Korean chef. And uh, he's pretty cool. He's, you know, he's a cool dude. But in terms of edginess, I don't know. I, I give it up for other talents and prospects. I mean as a working class chef, he's, well, of course he's fucking brilliant, but anyway, he says, I agree. The term workaholic is a silly name for a very real, very intense thing. Chefs often talk about the rush of opening a restaurant. It's not only a rush to me, it's heroin. I know I'm not alone. I received a message recently from a young woman named Joanna, who listens to my podcast and asked for her permission to share part of it with you. Uh, what stuck with me was the way you described your addiction to work. I've been so used to hearing of depression as something that forces you to do absolutely nothing. But pushing my limits became my drug. It was essentially a form of masochism. 18 years old and I found myself working nonstop 
for 20 hours a day. I didn't socialize. I major in computer engineering and spent my day in front of a laptop. I wear glasses now from staring at screens so much. Getting things done let me avoid taking care of myself. I was just too busy, in quotes. 96% of things you focused on relating to your struggles have, at, have caused me to think, oh my gosh, it's not just me. Frankly, you helped me realize working so hard was a side effect of my depression. A source of control and not just something other people who didn't know what was up admired me for. So that is, well, that's the American zeitgeist in a nutshell, isn't it? That's, that's the American mindset in a nutshell you know what else is in a nutshell this is this is my impression of me in a nutshell help me i'm trapped in a nutshell this giant nutshell just kidding that was stupid but moving on we are yeah we're addicted to work and um it's kind of like a blinder to addressing what is really ailing us isn't it So, I thought that was a fascinating take. And then my son, so then my son, I, I, I have to call him every day now because he's a, he's a hooligan. And I call him to just keep tabs on him. And, he, and then I go over homework with him and I test him and blah, blah, blah. And um, he, had a, he had a history homework piece that... Um, it was an article on Vox.com, which I I see links to every now and then, and it's kind of contemporary contemporary news type stuff. But the uh, he had to write a little short little essay on this article, and I said, "Well, send me the link so that I can help you." And I looked at it, and so it was, and it was quite interesting. I mean, it's got kind of I don't know. The author kind of takes some liberties with his ideology, in my opinion. But it, the title of the article is The Problem with America's Semi-Rich, which is the 9.9%. This is um, not the, t- okay, the top 0.1% is all the billionaire class. And then... The 90% of the rest of the world is us or the rest of American society is us struggling because there's no middle class anymore. And then in between is this 9.9%. And who these people are is um, they're the new aristocracy. That's kind of a... That's kind of a... Perpetuating kind of a a divide in my opinion there's now he's saying like the new aristocracy it's that's entrenching inequality and warping our culture well it kind of is warping our warping our culture but our culture is already warped in my opinion but it's the 9.9 percent of the people that are wealthy not to the degree obviously of the billionaire class but to the point where they're probably theoretically or yeah w- worth a mill or two, maybe not liquid, but their value is in the seven digits, but it's full go. Like they are going nonstop seven days a week. If there was an eighth day of the week, they'd work that too. They have nannies. That nanny is a surrogate parent who raises these kids and the kids are maxed out, optimized for their, you know, they're, uh, well, according to the article, there's the, the defining characteristics of today's upper middle, American, American upper middle class. They're hyper-focused on getting their kids into great schools and themselves into great jobs at which they're willing to work super long hours. They want to live in great neighborhoods, even if that means keeping others out and will pay what it takes to ensure their family's fitness and health. They believe in meritocracy, that they've gained their positions in society by talent and hard work they believe in markets they're rich but they don't feel like it they're always looking at someone else who's richer well this is not a new symptom in my i mean it's it's always the coveted it's that lonely depressed suburbanite class you know that may or may not interact you know mostly don't you know um 
you know, the highest percentage of depression and suicides are in the suburbs because of that isolation is because of the perpetuation of social media, the isolation of social media, but they're, uh, they're terrified. These people are terrified that they're going to be left behind. They're, they, they're going to feel like, um, they don't want to be the John Cusack character in 2012. They want to be the Russian billionaire that has the ticket to those big giant floating ships, you know, that are embedded in the Himalayan mountains when the floods come. They don't want to be left behind. You know, there's like, it's been, it's been, uh, purported to them. It's been ingrained in their psyche that this is what needs to happen. Great example of that. This has been going on for a long time. At least that I'm aware of, it's been going on since the eighties. When I was in high school, the the two, two of the probably three or four best runners in the nation were twin brothers who lived in El Dorado Hills, California. And they went to Jesuit High School, which is a private high school, Catholic, a private Catholic school. They lived not in the district. They were outside the district. But they were shepherded in and recruited by uh, the coach. Um, and then, of course, I'm sure they're, you know, the twins' parents... These two guys, Mark and Eric Mastelier, were fucking different. They were a different breed, for one. So it was kind of incumbent upon their parents to get the most out of them that they could because they were brilliant straight-A students. They both went to Stanford. They were ranked number one and three in the nation in the mile and two-mile Eric almost broke the national record in the 3,000 meters. I think he was sponsored by Adidas when he was in high school or just got out of high school. But that's what I'm talking about. Is these guys, they had receding hairlines in high school. They had 5 o'clock shadows. You know, these guys were different. And when, you know, your parents get a glimpse of that, they, they're going to they're gonna optimize, they're going to maximize that. They're going to get the most out of them. And uh, I can't, I don't know if it was Mark or Eric... Well, they, they went 1-2, I believe, in state, the state championships their senior year in both the mile and two-mile. Uh, Eric won, I think, both. He ran 844 in like 405, 405, 404 or 405, something ridiculous. They both went to Stanford. Eric Mastelier, I think he ended up becoming like he was a Russian literature major or something, some crazy, you know, cerebral type major but in the end they you know they probably both bought into like some venture capital group and now they're i'm sure you you know damn well they're millionaires okay and they're not gonna get left behind so they're i'm sure part of that 9.9 percent so it's fascinating of course my son my son when i talked to him today about what he wrote on in regard to that he just said well let's just tax the rich that was his whole essay (laughs) so i'm like fuck okay all right all right, I need to go to I need to work on this hooligan a little longer, but but he just got a job at KFC. <laughs> so good for him. But you know what? I I I scratched my head over that one because I thought, I'm you know, you can get a job at a dealership, son. And I kept pushing that, pushing that. But I had to back off because I didn't want to be that 9.9%. Let him go to KFC. Let that be the kind of white trash version of like these 13-year-old boys, 14-year-old boys that are working in French kitchens. This is my son. He's working in the American version of that shit. Now, he's going to learn his way through that kitchen. He's going to fry that shit. So, so that's what you get. That's what you get, boy. So, lo and behold, it's just very interesting. It's very interesting. You know, um, You know, there's there's a keen juxtaposition in all this banter about ageless freedom and so forth, and David Goggins and uncommon amongst uncommon people. You've got you got this guy Bill Buford just taken off of France at the age of fifty three to learn French cooking. You got the nine point nine percent who covet a meritocracy, which is such horseshit. It's it's you know these these poor little dupes like Candace Owens and stuff that are fed this bullshit that we live in a meritocracy to a point, but a very, a very, uh, innocuous 
point, it's a meritocracy. But the stats, the data on this is like 90% of real wealth, like real heavy wealth in the U.S. is all inherited. It's all inherited. You can go back to all the way back to the Kennedy era. And I'm talking Joe Kennedy. I'm not talking John F. Kennedy. I'm talking about his dad, Joseph Kennedy. His dad, Joe Kennedy, uh, came up from the streets and built a fortune, built his own. He was, he was a self-made meritocratic, self-made millionaire. And it was all by design. He was a bootlegger where he initially got his money. And then he became a stock manipulator. So he would basically like pump a stock. He'd be like the modern day, you know, Wall Street Reddit guy that pump, 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 pumps the stock. Everybody jumps in on it. Then he sells it out, takes his profit, it plummets the rest of them are left holding the bag. And that's where the Kennedys got their money, right? So then he has, he has all these sons. He's got Joe Jr. He's got, then he's got John. Then he's got um, Ted. And then he's got Bobby. And they're all groomed. The girls are all, the girls are just groomed to be girls and do girl things. Uh, Rose was lobotomized because she, they didn't know what bipolar was or, you know, she, I mean, this was the thirties, man. You know, the thirties and forties, like they didn't know what this shit was going on. So, so what does Joe Kennedy do? So he gets his oldest son, He's he's gonna be he was the one that was going to be president, okay? And unfortunately, he died in an, uh, in a secret bomb raid uh, in England, and uh, he was about to he was taking a bomb over. He was gonna bomb some part of Germany, and the bomb blew up before it was dropped. So next in line was John F. Kennedy, G, John F. K, Jack, JFK, but they were all groomed. They all went to Harvard. They were all junior senators. Bobby Kennedy, Ted Kennedy. They were all in politics. They why were they in politics? To so that they can legislate their moves, so they can open up inroads. Um, Dad Joe Kennedy was ambassador, uh, U.S. ambassador to England during the war, and then. Because, uh, well, because he sadly was a sympathizer, a Nazi sympathizer. Like he took JFK, he took, he took John Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy to Hitler's speeches. They, they, they went to go see him speak. And, uh, but anyway, when the U.S. got wind of this, they're like, ah, this is embarrassing. And they yanked his ambassadorship and, uh, Joe Kennedy, I think, uh, if you had to, if you had to form a hypothesis, all the tragedy that ha- happened after, you know, to his first son, to Jack, to Bobby, to Ted, even Chappaquiddick, all that stuff was just like a curse. It was all just some kind of universal karmic debt that the Kennedys had to pay for all of Joe's misdeeds. But why was he doing that? Because he was the high end of that nine point nine percent. Now, wasn't he? I mean, he wasn't the 0.1%. He was that kid from the streets, you know, from Ireland. I mean, from this rough streets of Ireland with a chip on his shoulder, right? That was building a family and he was going to build wealth within that family. And that's where the 9.9% comes from. My son doesn't understand that. And if I told him that, if I told him, if I wrote that in an essay or told him to put that in an essay, he'd flunk because, um, well, they'd know it wasn't written by him. So it's not fair. He's got to learn on his own. And that's... You know, that's the division we face, right? Do you do the work for your son so that he can get in the good school, so he can get the good job, so he can get the good wife and live in the good neighborhood to get the good job, to get the good retirement, to get the good boat, to get the good office? No, my son's going to earn it, man. And You know, I don't... I, I, I understand nepotism, but I, I... And I love my kids. I love all... But I, I'm a, I'm a free range dad and I got free range kids and those kids are going to make it or break it on their own because they, that's the only way you're going to, I don't know. 
you know where I'm going with this. But, uh, so, uh, so I get it. You know, when you go back to like the French kitchens, the social and physical challenges of the French kitchens, French attitudes, the structure of abuse in the kitchen is, is probably essential to development, right? I'll give you an example. When I was selling cars, my manager, my buddy, Jeff Serber, good friend, stayed at his house many times, have my own room there. You know, when I, when my, my lady would turn into Aaron Blockovich, I would take up residence over there. But when it came to work, man, it was a fucking free for all. It was fucking wild, wild west. And one day I had an appointment that I had to uh, take, but I was working with a guy the circumstances were that no, it was my it was my appointment, but I had this kid, this young kid, Aaron Rubakava, worked the appointment because I was with another customer, and the customer had requested me, so I couldn't turn that customer over to Aaron. There something to that effect, but what what he did, what what my manager and my friend did, was basically. It came in, it came to where Aaron was going to take half of a deal. He was going to take both halves of the, of these two deals. But in that circumstance, if you have an appointment, you automatically get half if somebody else is working it. And then I kept working the deal that I think the people that were, were requested me somehow Somehow Jeff was trying to troll. He was trolling me. He's like, I'm putting Rubikov on this, on half this deal. I'm like, no, you're not. He's like, uh, yeah, no, it's, I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. That's not even in the rules, man. And you know the rules. You know the fucking rules. Well, the whole time he's trolling me. Like hard, you know, because that's what you do. That's what you do in life, in the car business, in a, in a French kitchen or on a stand-up stage, you know, is you troll the fuck out of these people to get a reaction. And I took the bait, man. I took the bait like a fucking dunce. And uh, I ended up grabbing this kid, Rubikava, because he was on board. Rubikava is this kid. He want, He was just hungry for deals, man. He took you half. He'll, he'll take half of anything. He'll, he'll take uh, half of a hobo's dick cheese sandwich if you offered it to him. But I grabbed this little kid by the tie, man, and I, I was gonna, I was about ready to choke him out right on the showroom floor, right in front of everybody. I grabbed his, I grabbed his necktie, and I said, "You're not getting half of that fucking deal." They had to pull me off him. I, I walked right into it like a fool. But the whole thing was an exercise in just trolling, getting a, getting a reaction, getting your blood flowing, you know. And uh, not one of my prouder moments, I had a nice little talking to, but we dusted ourselves off and went back to work like gentlemen. But not one of my finer moments, I guarantee you. Uh, Rubikov ended up turning, he was, he's a good kid. But yeah, like I say, man, put yourself through hellfire, put yourself through like a Goggins situation, you know? Because it's all about what's in between your ears, man. You can be as tough as you want. This guy f- literally broke his feet running and just kept going. Didn't feel a thing. Excuse me. Damn. But we're all capable of doing pretty much anything. You know, to... to to think we're just going to sail off into the sunset here and, and just live out our 50s sipping daiquiris, I don't, that doesn't appeal to me, man. I want to, I want to be in that kitchen, man. I, I want to be in like some crazy instance where I'm trying to blend in with the, the kids. Hey, how's it going, fellow skater dudes? <laughs> you know, I want to leg it out. I want to show these punks, you know, you can't break me. You can't break me. 
I think that was the name of uh, oh, that was the name of Goggins' book. Is that wasn't is that the name of his book? Um, you can't defeat me. Let's see, David Goggins' book. Can't hurt me. That's what it is. You can't hurt me. Yeah, fucking. I haven't. Uh, I would like to read. Well, I I know pretty much the whole story, but like, you just weren't gonna break this guy. You know, he he even had the seal other fellow seals pissed at him because he tuned them out too. I mean, of course, the whole notion is you know to have each other's back. I get that, but when you're in training, man. And you're in that zone. You're in. The, you got tunnel vision, man. And you're carrying the boats over your head, man. You. You just don't let pain in, man. And when pain gets to the other guys, and they're, you know, the back end of that boat you're carrying over your head starts sagging because somebody's letting you down, man. You light them up, man. And you tell them what's up. And then you don't give a fuck what the what the blowback is because you're you're uncommon amongst uncommon people. You know, you can't, you can't hurt him. You can't break him. Fast. Anywho, so that's my take on it. It all comes back to, maybe it all comes back to like, uh, the weekend warrior that's strapped to the guy that's, that that's his job as a skydiver. Like, you know, it was either that or like working at, you know, um, Ace Hardware. I don't, I couldn't, you know, one or the other. I was going to jump out of planes or I was going to sell hammers. And so there's somewhere in the middle, somewhere in the middle between that elation, that life affirming, like I didn't die, even though I'm strapped to a guy that's going to do this 17 more times today. That elation of, of just challenging, staring death in the face. And 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 uh, and then seeing death, looking death in the face seventeen times that same day, to the point of its m- being mundane. Somewhere in the middle of there is uh, who knows. Somewhere in the middle of there is peace and uh, personal happiness. You know, a good. Um, I watched the. I've been watching all, I'm just, I'm on this chef bent, man, I can't help it, okay, but I was watching the chef's table, and, and, uh, one of the episodes, I highly, I would highly recommend if you kind of want to have some peaceful kernel of serenity just illustrated before you, watch the episode with John Kwan, J-E-O- N.G. Kwan, K-W-A-N. She's a Buddhist monk who basically makes fucking like three Michelin-starred, five-star restaurant quality food for just the other monks and the students in the monastery. She doesn't have a restaurant. She is this tiny little... She couldn't even be five feet tall... I'll bet she's like 4'10". She's shaved bald. She's got a cute little... She's got a cute little bug face. And uh, she makes art. Like, her dishes are art. But it's like going to the school cafeteria. So much so... It's art so much so... That other fr- other great chefs... Eric Repair, who was Anthony Bourdain... One of Anthony Bourdain's best friends... Went there. Other chefs go there to see her tech, watch her cook, eat her food, see her technique. Um, Eric Repair, he basically told this guy, Jeff Gordonier, the guy that wrote the book about Rene Redzepi, he said, You got to go. You got to go. She was, she was in New York. Uh, was she in New York? I think she was in New York, yeah, for some kind of guest luncheon thing she was going to cook for a bunch of people some some great chefs were going to be there and they called this guy Gordon Ayer who was the New York Times food critic at the time 
and said, you got to go. And he's like, I, I, I got other obligations. He's like, no, you have to go. So he went um, on the prodding of repair. This other great chef, uh, uh, who, he's the head chef of, of uh, Le Bernardin, one of the great, you know, I think it's another three-star Michelin. And, uh, but he, he, he partially narrates this episode of Jean Quan, Jean Quan, Jean Quan. And it's so otherworldly. Like it's, it's uncommon amongst uncommon. Like it's so, because, you know, you're coming from say like the background of these brilliant, great chefs, these innovative chefs and they're they are going to see this little Buddhist monk and and are just in awe. And I think, I thought that was just the, the wildest, wildest little paradox, little twist. But it was so poetic, it was so artistic that, I don't know. I don't know, I thought that was really fascinating. But I highly recommend that episode. It's on Netflix. Um, to me, I think Bill Buford is an amazing person too. uh, the other end of that spectrum, just the mere fact that, you know, he went to work in a, in a kitchen, in a legendary kitchen, La Mer Brasier, as a 53 year old guy that just kind of like cut his teeth in Mario Batali's kitchen for free, learning how to, you know, learning how to butcher hogs and uh, make foie gras and just in these sweaty kitchens and emptying garbage and cleaning and doing dishes and just uh he said he lost like 20 pounds doing this (laughs) just through no effort through just cooking and just at this intense pace it's so it's it would be so exhilarating so there's like there's both ends of this brilliant spectrum there's both ends of this pendulum this john kwan peace and Buddhist and monastic take on food and your connection, the connection again, it's always the connection. And then the intense vibrancy and the rock star lives of these crazy chefs and these revered men and women and sociopaths and crazy people and innovators and uh, it's just a so yeah Buford is like and to me Buford uh, he looks like he's probably somewhere in between say Hunter S. Thompson who rode with like the Hells Angels and Jeff Gordon here who rode with Rene Redzepi Bill Buford the guy who lived in and among in and among the the thugs of British hooliganism you know, which that in itself is fascinating. I mean, um, you know, he was in several riots himself. Uh, one in Turin in uh, Italy. Uh, and at the, and then at the 1990 World Cup in Sardinia, uh, he went to a bunch of games. He, he, li- he lived in and amongst these, these soccer fans, these hooligans, spending time mostly uh, with... A group of Manchester United fans, which they're the they're the worst. I mean, that's 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 Northern England, man. That's blue collar. That's working class. That's 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 the Gallagher brothers. That's Oasis, man. Those guys like to fight. Uh, they were and uh, you know he went to several gatherings, um, several uh, you know a number of incidences where the number of the traits. Uh, well, they're all hooligans, okay, and whatever guys you put them, uh, but uh, but it would ultimately turn violent. The, these incidences in these uh, in these gatherings would turn violent. He was beaten up by Italian police. Uh, he got cu- uh, he when he was caught riding with the English supporters in Sardinia. And this is a this is a you know this is a badass too. This guy's badass too. Um. You know, he related. He relates both both firsthand and secondhand reports of hooligan violence, ranging from beatings to stabbings, 
to a supporter biting out the eye of a police officer. I mean, Jesus Christ, this guy's the real deal. So to put that kind of uh, embedded journalism into, you know, a more intense version of, say, you know, like, was it Peter Mayle that wrote A Year in Provence? It's like, it's like a guttier, gutsier version of like A Year in Provence, you know? Uh, it's uh, it's intense shit, man. But it just goes to show you everything's in between your ears, man. Whatever you think you can do and whatever you think you can't do, you're right. And that's, that's the podcast for today, boys and girls. I'll talk at you later. Arrivederci, baby. Thank